1: Live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Fireman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adamia. Head on fast. All that glitters gold crossing the 2K mark earlier today and the precious metal now up nearly nine percent this year, while the S&P is down more than seven percent. Should investors keep mining the metals, we will dig in. Plus, Elon Musk has some big gripes at the Twitter board complaining they're literally not investing in the company. They don't seem to use the product much and they still get paid a lot of money. Is he just mad that Twitter's not embracing his offer? Does he have a point? We'll debate that. And later, the bird flu spreading to 31 states, infecting nearly 27 million chickens and turkeys on farms. Egg and poultry prices spiking. We will go inside these numbers and the stocks being impacted. But we start off with the countdown to big tech earnings. Netflix set to kick off the parade in just under 24 hours the stock is flirting with its lowest levels in two years, and it's not the only tech name struggling. Look at the performance of the biggest names in the market. Just this month, Microsoft down more than nine percent, Alphabet down more than eight under even more pressure. The high growth, high multiple stocks, SoFi, Robinhood, Carvana, just some of the names dropping double digits in this young month of April. And with the interest rates starting to climb to their highest levels since the end of 2018, is this trade just about to complete? completely crumble. Dan? And specifically, we're talking about big cap tech. Are we going to see that shoe drop?
2: Well, I think you have to differentiate between a company like Netflix when you get the tech earnings off. It's a $150 billion market cap company that's had uh, explosive growth over the last two years, obviously a pandemic winner here. Uh, earnings and sales expected to be kind of flattish. And really, I guess the question is, do you want to value this company on next year's earnings and sales growth this early in 2022? And my guess is not. I think a lot of investors are probably waiting for one other shoe to drop. So if you're thinking of this this really giving the tone for mega cap tech earnings. I'm not sure Netflix is going to do it. I really think we're gonna have to wait a week or two until we get into the Microsoft, the Apple, the Google and the Amazon and where expectations are much higher. I mean, just look at how those stocks are trading relative to Netflix, which is down 44% on the year already.
1: Yeah, Karen, which one in your view is the barometer for big cap tech? And I understand they're very different companies with different business models, different pressures buffeting them, but still, Mm -hmm. um, which one?
3: I think probably Microsoft, um, I think, because it's the most, well, it's a business and it's and it's uh, personal. But I think that it's had an extraordinary run. They've been a pandemic winner, but I don't see them as a reopen loser. Um, and it's it's a quality company. It should trade at a high premium. It does trade at a high premium, but is it enough? So I think that'll sort of be a major tell. To me, the, the Amazon, sort of a separate animal. And then also together, I would probably have uh, Meta and Alphabet, which are the cheapest by uh, many metrics or most metrics <coughs> that I see as um, a little bit of a different play. And that, those are the two I'm most optimistic on.
1: Yeah. Still, um, Tim, some people are saying that perhaps the expectations for Netflix still too high. It'll be the first one out of the gate. Well, it'll certainly set the tone, at least, for trading ahead of a lot of these earnings reports. Um, And so I'm wondering where you stand since you are a fairly recent shareholder. I mean, you bought after its disastrous outlook given last quarter.
4: Yeah, I I think you've reset a lot of expectations. I think Netflix exists in a very different Uh, sentiment sphere, and and certainly in a very different place on the chart and a very different place on the valuation front relative to itself than Microsoft and Apple. Um, So uh, while I don't think Netflix will knock the cover off the ball, and they've certainly guided uh, also where Russia equals one to two million subs, um, this is a company that expectations were about 25 million in subs for all 22. That's not going to happen. And to the extent that the first quarter uh, and the guide there was really what, what destroyed this company, I think you have expectations. Uh, more or less in line. And, and I think you've also uh, lapped significant COVID-related comps. So uh, at a time when, yeah, next week is, is going to begin a very important week for the market, the the, the companies that, that would keep me up at night, frankly, are, are Apple uh, and Microsoft, because those are the ones that are trading at perfection. And I think those are the ones that at some point really do have terribly difficult comps. should be noted that, that today you actually saw semiconductors rally almost 2%. Um, They've been down 16.5% in 13 days to the intraday lows. So um, you've priced in a lot of bad news. If you think we've actually gone to peak inflation, there's a big debate about that. Maybe it's, you know, we're going to talk about food possibly going higher. But then you're probably legging into big cap tech where you've revalued and and knocked the valuations down 20%. Uh, I don't expect a great uh, outlook for 2Q from all the big boys, but I do think you've priced a lot in.
1: Yeah, there's a headline today that I read, Guy, that concerned me regarding Apple. And that uh, was one coming out of China, the biggest decline in consumer spending since early in the pandemic. Um, and, And that makes you wonder about a lot of the companies that have heavy presence in China that saw China as a growth engine and now could see China as one of the biggest headwinds during this quarter.
5: No question. Obviously, that's been a huge growth engine for Apple. And Apple seems to be the stock that people are going to in sort of this flight to quality When the market does sell off, but it's interesting showing a little weakness recently. I think Apple's the most fascinating out of all of them, just in regard to the level it traded down to that huge intraday bounce. We saw, I think, on March 14th, another run towards that 182 level, giving it up now. And, you know, we talked about Taiwan Semi last week. We'll see if that number or that Taiwan Semi report has any bearing whatsoever on Apple. I'll just throw one thing about Netflix, because why not? I mean, as we said, cut in half. This $2.90 is a guide down from, I think, $3.50 when they reported the fourth quarter. Two numbers I'm looking for. I think the stock gets crushed if it doesn't hit it. 3 bucks CPS, $8.00 billion in revenue. Anything short of that, and I think the stock's down another 10%.
1: Where should we stand, um, Dan, when it comes to big cap technology in this inflationary, Rising rate environment at this point, given some of the declines that we've already seen.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. Though in Q1 of 2021, when rates started going higher, right off of mm-hmm. just you know historical lows, the 10-year I think went from like 50 bips to 1.77 in Q1. The hardest hit group was mega-cap tech. You remember the QQQ, the underperformance there. You had Apple, I think, was down 20% from a then peak or so. And that playbook, the recession playbook, the 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 the, the high inflation playbook, kind of changed at some point. And, and I think these guys have all said it in a way, there's just a lot of money that's hiding out in these massive top five or six names. When you think about the destruction in high valuation tech, in recent IPOs, in SPACs, you know what I mean, over this last year. And that's why it really likely to me is the final shoe to drop. And if you do have a Microsoft that's meant to be like, okay, we've all said it deserves that premium multiple. They have that recurring revenue. Apple is moving more and more to recurring revenue. So you're going to reward those sorts of revenues if they are to guide down in the next you know, week or two for Q2 or something like that, it's lights out. I mean, I just think that that's the kind of final shoot a drop. And you finally will see an S&P that's down 20 percent. And how we come out of that is not V. It's going to take some time because we are used to the Fed coming in and saving the day in those periods. And they're just telling us that they can't do that, not for at least this next six to nine months.
1: Maybe, unless things really slow down and they do a a dovish pivot guy. And then how do we set up for that? I mean, I don't know if the market is set up for that for a quick change in the Fed, which they could very well do. We just had some comments from St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, who has been a proponent of 50 basis points um, in a single hike for a very long time. But he said something to the effect of, I can't rule out a 75 basis point hike in the next meeting. It's not the base case, but he can't rule it out. And the fact that he couldn't rule it out, and that is even, you know, a, a little glimmer in his eye right now, Guy, is interesting.
5: He's been pretty steadfast since November. It's yeah. so maybe even before that in terms of his hawkish view. So I say good for him, number one. Number two, to answer the question about if the Fed were to pivot and be more dovish for whatever reason, if, whether a market sell-off or some economic data that comes in really soft, I think that'd actually be bullish knee-jerk for the market. I think it'd be really bearish long-term. I think they've put themselves in a position now where you know they have to fight inflation. I think that's bearish. And if they were for whatever reason acquiesce. To the whims of the market, I think longer term that would be bearish for the market. That's just a setup that I see right now. We'll see if it plays out. By the way, I know we all know this, but the market's pricing and rate cuts second half of 2023. So there's some people yeah. out there that think that's happening
1: anyway. Right. I mean, the market's also pricing a recession. Many people are pricing a recession in 2023 as well. Let's get some more details um, on what St. Louis Fed President James Bullard said. Talk to the man who actually interviewed Bullard, Steve Leisman. Hey there <laughs> interesting headlines hey uh,
6: yeah it, it, for sure and just so everybody knows this was a council on foreign relations event that i was moderating which is why we didn't bring you uh, all live on uh, cnbc here as we normally might do um, but I, I think melissa i'm struck by how kind of cool bullard is about all this he's uh He he says we need to do 50s at almost every meeting, bring the uh, rate up to neutral and see how things are going. Might do a 75, but it's not his base case. He wouldn't rule that out. But how cool he is about the impact on the economy. I must have asked him eight different ways to Sunday about whether all this would cause a recession. He says quite the opposite. He believes that the unemployment rate will continue to decline. He believes that um, the uh, economy will continue to grow above potential. He thinks some of the clearing from inflation will happen naturally. And the most important thing for the Fed to do is get a hold of what he calls inflation expectations. He thinks that you can still have a hot economy and not have a recession and have the Fed going up very quickly to neutral. He used the 1994 example when the Fed raised 300 basis points uh, in a very short period of time in about a year and launched, uh, you know, one of the best uh, what he called one of the best periods of macroeconomic performance uh, in the history of the country.
1: So, what is his base case in terms of the rate hike path, which is the backdrop for him he, seeing still above trend growth?
6: Do you know what a funicular is, uh, Melissa? Yes,
1: yes, I do actually.
6: That's his base case. That's his base case. So his it's base really case steep. Like this.
1: Yeah.
6: <laughs> it's really steep. So, he wants to get to three and a half by the end of the year. So, that's three, uh-huh. 325 basis points, 3.25 percentage points in addition to balance sheet. Reduction that's above where the average Fed person is by about, I don't know, call it a hundred basis points, depending upon where you put the average. So he has another four quarter point hikes built in to his scenarios, what he like He may not get right. that from the Fed or from other committee members. And let's be clear that he's been pushing this and he's moved the committee with him, but not as far as he's been willing to go. He thinks we need to get to neutral, thinks the Fed is behind the curve. And by the way, he also points this out, which I'm sure a lot of your members of your panel are aware of. A lot of the tightening's already in. You know, you're looking at a 250, 2 year uh, 280 uh, uh, on the on the 10-year. So it's there. He thinks that that the Fed the Fed doesn't have as far to go in terms of pushing the market uh, as as it has to actually raise the funds rate to meet what market is already priced in.
1: Yeah, Karen, I think you had a question for Steve.
3: <clears throat> yes, I do. Hi, Steve. Um, Thanks for being on. So I think we'll see on this panel probably agree the Fed should have continued in their path in 2018 that sort of bowing to the market was maybe a mistake. Do you think that now they have sort of the fortitude, for lack of a better word, to stay with the path that they're on, even if the market doesn't react well?
6: It's a great question. I, I would say they have fortitude to two, two and a quarter. Whether or not there's fortitude above that uh, is going to depend, Karen, I think on all the things that you uh, lay out there, which is how the market reacts. And again, the market reaction for the Fed is different from the market reaction to this panel. What would cause you guys to cringe and hide under your desks? is not the same thing that would cause Powell to do the same. Uh, what he would be concerned about would be market functioning, Is market clearing, is it gapping down, is there liquidity in the market? Those would be the things that would concern the Federal Reserve. Whereas uh, over time a 5, 10, 15% decline in in the market, you can throw things at me now if you like, would be something that would not necessarily c- concern the Fed depending on how we get there.
1: 5, 10 or 15% decline. Okay. Mm-hmm. If we could, maybe we yeah, would, Yeah, now you Steve. can throw things at me. <laughs> um, thank you, Steve, for bringing us those, uh, those headlines. <laughs> Y'all know where I when live. When we talk with Fuller, <laughs> Steve Leisman. Well, let's get to our okay. next guest here. He sees the market grinding higher due to peaking inflation. Julian Emanuel leads strategy for Evercore ISI. He joins us here at the NASDAQ. Julian, it's great to see you in person. It's been too long.
7: Who says you can't ever go home again? It is so great to be with you and Dan and the team. Thank you.
1: What do you think? You were nodding your head when Steve was talking about the notion that the market has done a lot of the work in terms of tightening. Um, if Bullard had his way, and we had three and a quarter percent. Um, you know, by the end of the year, additional tightening. What do you think that we would do, the markets?
7: So first off, I think we have to understand the context of Bullard himself. He has been a hawk consistently, and I think part of his remit is to guide the rest of the Fed towards that more hawkish stance and the market itself. And by that standard, he's done an amazing job. And if you think about when those comments hit in the last 15 minutes or so of the day, what happened? Stocks loved it because they loved the fact that, as Steve pointed out, the comment is it's in the price already. The market gets it. But is it in the economy?
2: Then that's really, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of market participants are trying to figure out, like, you know, what is the pace of a slowdown? Because they need to slow things down. So that's, I get it. You know, like bond investors, they moved. And and now when is it going to hit the
7: economy? So if you look at it and you think about a year like 1994, which is a lot of the comparison, and actually the last year, the only year in the last 40, where both stocks and bonds were down for the whole year as they are (laughs) sitting here in in, uh, mid-April, is that the market just sort of digested it and there was a lot of sideways chop, there was a lot of bearishness, but at the end of the day, earnings carried the day. And that's what we see when we think about 22 and 23, because we don't think there's going to be a recession.
1: Tim's got a question hey,
7: Julian and Tim. welcome back
4: but but does, does the market uh, with a forward PE multiple that hasn't necessarily priced in policy uh, accommodation and, and you know the tightening that I think and the extreme pace that that Bullard just talked about I mean that's that's what should concern folks it's not that the market hasn't done a lot of work already it's not that the, we all don't believe the Fed needs to be aggressive. Uh, The question is Dan referred to the economy. I'm not sure we've heard from companies in an environment where rates are 125 basis points higher, and I don't think stocks have priced that.
7: So I I would agree with that, Tim. And I think part of what has really kept people on the back foot coming into the start of this earnings season is this idea that we're going to get negative commentary, we're going to get downward revisions. And we might, but our point of view is from a, a stock market perspective. With lots of delevering going on, 15 percent bulls, essentially a 30-year low. that's in the price. Now, as far as the economy is concerned, again, it, to us, it, it is a question of can you manage through what's already in the price from an asset market perspective? And our view is is that as, as difficult as the external circumstances have been abroad and certainly slowing down in China now. The U.S. consumer is still intact.
1: Um, But in terms of things being priced in in this negative commentary, Julian, do you think companies will actually stick by guidance when they can easily say, we've got inflation, inflationary pressures, we have question marks about markets around the world because of Ukraine, Russia, and because of what's going on in China. I mean, it, it feels to me that it's, it's the perfect opportunity for companies to give negative guidance and to cause earnings estimates to come down.
7: So I think there has been an element of caution, uh, but in fact, part of the story that's been remarkable is that margins on balance haven't contracted because the pricing power has been there and again it comes down to the consumer could pricing power erode it could but you're speculating that that's going to happen and and from from that point of view look are you going to get a uh, peak commodity prices peak inflation as we think may be happening you're not going to hear that from companies they don't need to take that risk yeah. guidance wise but on the other hand we don't think they're going to be you know very very cautionary because they really haven't seen the evidence concretely themselves.
1: Julian, thank you. Good thank to see you. you. Great to see, see you again in person soon. Julian Emanuel. Guy Dami, what do you, what do you think? I, I feel like I know what you think. That's a terrible thing to say, but in terms of the kind of guidance we're going to hear from companies this earnings season and whether or not they continue to have pricing power. Remember, a lot of companies have already um, instituted a round of price hikes on consumers for various other reasons prior to this.
5: Yeah, you do know what I think. I think clearly margins are going to be impacted. And again, I think Tim and Dan said it as well. The bond market might have priced all this in, but I don't think the equity market has at all. You go back to March, April 2020, obviously the bond market moved extraordinarily quickly, but the stock market rallied for the next 18 months. So you could say the bond market moves quickly and the stock market sort of lags. So in that regard, I think the market has more room to downside. And then the question is, what's the right multiple in a higher interest rate and volume uh, environment for the s p 500 i don't think it's 21 22 i think it's closer to 18. you know on 230 dollars ish of earnings we can start doing the math and figure out where the s p should be
1: karen do you think the consumer is as strong as everybody wants to give it credit for
3: i think i mean if you listen to brian moynihan today in the bank of america call yes i think he was probably even characterized it as stronger than we think you know just mm-hmm. talking about the average balances and very low credit and, um, and this consumer spending. And so I think that could be the upside surprise that the consumer is
1: very much there ready to spend. All right, coming up, going gold. The metal and its mine are shining bright. So is this where you should park your money? we got the trade next. Plus the battle of the board. Elon Musk calling out Twitter's board of directors saying they don't even have any skin in the game. But do his gripes hold water? We'll, we'll break that down. And if you love fast, we've got a treat for you. A special bonus hour is coming up 6 p.m. Eastern time. You won't want to miss it.
0: The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
8: Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy.
1: Welcome back to Fast Money Check out Gold shining bright as the precious metal hits its highest level in more than a month, topping $2,000 an ounce at one point today. The miners coming along for the ride, the GDX ETF hitting its highest level since 2020. Tim, you think uh, there's more room here?
4: What is good is gold. I think there's a lot more room. And remember, some of these miners in the GDX also mine copper. And if you look at the medium term, I think, and I mean short to medium term, at a minimum, Uh, And then as you get to the end of the decade, a a deficit in copper, I think it bodes very well. I say this all the time. I think mining companies have never been run better. I think they've been run for equity shareholders. So while the gold underlying continues to go higher, copper's been largely sideways, although near record highs. It's an incredible environment for gold miners. This has all been happening, by the way, with the underlying gold price with the dollar, uh, you know, just 2% from 19-year highs, 2% from 19-year highs in the dollar. So in other words, the dollar is soaring um, mm-hmm. and, and gold is obviously going along with it. I think people misunderstood gold's lack of follow-through during the early stages of this inflation follow-through. Uh, I think gold looks as good as gold as it has in a long time.
1: Just to underscore that point, it's not supposed to do that gold and dollar in the same direction. We, we can't leave behind silver also, Guy, its highest level in more than a month as well.
5: No, and people will look names like Silver Wheat and Pan American. Um, obviously, those are levered to the price. It's lagged. I think the best thing that happened to Silver was that whole Wall Street Bets Reddit crowd way back when, when it was in vogue. And then, obviously, that became the worst thing. But I think Silver will get lakes. I'll say this. Newmont Mining is trading like gold should be significantly higher. Uh, continues to make new all-time highs. The GDX has actually lagged a little bit. Newmont reports, I think, on the 22nd. And I think there's a lot of runway for this name.
1: All right. Meantime, let's get to another twist in the battle for Twitter. Private equity group Apollo reportedly considering providing financial support for a bid. The financing could be in debt or equity, according to The Wall Street Journal, and could be in support of Elon Musk or perhaps another bidder. So the plot thickens. Meantime, Elon Musk is not backing down from his fight for Twitter. The Tesla CEO now calling out the board directly over the weekend, pointing out several issues he has. Let's bring in Sydney Finkelstein to walk us through some of Musk's concerns. Sydney, great to have you with us.
9: Thanks. Good to be on.
1: Um, I want to ask you about some of these, some of these complaints um, and, and whether or not this is something that we should be concerned about. You had indicated to our producers that you think boards are in general too cozy. So the fact that the Twitter board, they don't use the product much, if at all, they get paid a lot of money um, <laughs> and they don't have stock. Are these issues to be concerned with? How common are these practices?
9: So yes, they are uh, issues. You'd like your board members to have some of their own personal skin in the game, um, using the uh, the company's product. That kind of makes sense. That Twitter has kind of a low barrier to to use. Uh, although I will say that a bunch of board members are very very um, uh, wealthy on their own right from other work that they've uh, other work that they've done. So um, the mystery is why none of that wealth is going into Twitter stock.
1: Uh, do you think that the Twitter board is conflicted because they are getting paid a lot? I mean, you mentioned that they're wealthy already, but the, the, the fact that they can collect a fairly um, fat paycheck for sitting on the board uh, hinders them from being objective in evaluating any sort of bid.
9: So, you know, people join boards of directors for lots of reasons. Uh, one is to uh, gain social uh, cachet and prestige. One is to network with important people in the business community. And yes, for some people, um, supplementing their income is part of it. But uh, when you look at the board members here, they they uh, they're doing pretty well. So, you know, I know Elon Musk has said they're they're getting a lot of uh, they're getting a lot of uh, money and maybe it's a lot of money for an average person, you know, 250 or 300,000 each or whatever it is. But, you know, when when you're the co-CEO of Salesforce, that can't be a lot of money.
3: Hi, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. Just a question. Given Elon's sort of flip-flop on taking the seat and then not his own flip-flop on Tesla, you know, fully funded or funding secured, do you think the board is doing the right thing by, at the moment, sort of putting the pill in, which they did, and seemingly at the moment to just say no?
9: Well, you know, poison, poison Pill has a couple of purposes. One, of course, is it makes it tougher for, the, for an acquirer to, uh, to, to take over the company. And the second thing it does is it gives you a um, kind of a, uh, a different bit of leverage point with that acquirer so that you're in a position to um, negotiate with them and maybe pay, maybe get them to pay more. I have no idea if that's in process right, uh, right now or not. Uh, but you know, Elon, Elon Musk has offered a price it's $54 and change. That's uh, it's higher than the price today and it's probably it was, it was almost certainly a lot higher than he paid to get his stock and what the stock was just a while ago. So um, for a company that's not really making much money, it sounds like, uh, it's like something they should be considering seriously.
1: Uh, Sydney, it's great to speak with you. Thanks for your perspective on this. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Dan.
2: Hmm. Well, listen, we talked about this on Thursday afternoon before the long weekend. We knew that Musk would be tweeting all weekend. And a lot of what he says about the board is correct. And we've said this. It's kind of a cozy situation. Yeah. They're not there for the money. They're not invested. They don't use the product. It's a weak board. That being said, they also have a very weak management that don't really have a plan. When you look at the way that some of their competitors are monetizing and the way that, let's say, Snap, which has a $53 billion enterprise value versus this at 36, even after this bid, you'd much rather say, all right. The one has a plan, and they're doing this, and they're moving forward. So at the end of the day, I think shareholders of Twitter might be okay. I said I thought on Thursday afternoon. bit of a sideshow. If he sells, the stock's going to fill in that gap back towards 40. Now that you have other real private equity companies showing some interest, there could be uh, you know, some sort of strategic bid that comes in or something with P.E., and it doesn't have to be with Musk.
1: But it does have to be higher. It has to be a higher bid than what Elon Musk has offered in order for the board to be able to even entertain that the offers, Tim, what do you think at this point?
0: Well,
4: you know, I, th- I think the focus on the board is kind of silly. Uh, I mean, the board's not the problem. The the, the, the the management's the problem. The fact that the company has not been able to innovate, has not been able to monetize. Um, but the fact that it, I think there are a handful of people that recognize whatever uh, we're going to measure intrinsic value on, but that this is a company that's underperforming. That's the story. And, and i I'll go back again to uh, a period in which the analyst community universally upgraded this company because the company told you they had a way to double revenue and get to 310 MAUs by 23. And and so, you know, either something has been uh, completely derailed in terms of execution on management, and I think it has, and we've seen a management mm-hmm. change. Um, is the board really responsible for this? I don't think so.
1: But Doesn't it have a role, though? I mean, if, if the company is underperforming, isn't that the role of the board to step in and say, Hey, Parag, or whoever is the CEO at the moment, you know, this is not working. Um, show us something. We're, we're speaking on behalf of shareholders because we have a fiduciary duty here, Guy.
5: I'm sure they've had those conversations, though. And to Tim's point, you know, I don't need the board members necessarily using Twitter or tweeting. I mean, I'm sure that people that sit on the board of Deer and Company. They're not driving tractors on the weekend, or maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? <laughs> I don't think that's a prerequisite. But I think... To Tim's point as well, it's about the company, it's about management, they've underperformed. I'll tell you this about the stock, though, and we've put in pretty steadfast this 45 55 range is working. And I think we're going to, I do think we will see 55 before we do see 45. So you just trade it that way.
1: What do you think, Karen? Does Musk have a point about boards? And and shouldn't Mm the, I mean, isn't it partially the responsibility of the board to make sure that whatever plan is being executed for the good of the company to show growth in the company?
3: Yes. I mean, so indirect, to me, the most important job of the board is to hire and fire the CEO. OK, so they've done that. Right. And then the second most important job of the board is a situation just like this. How do they maximize value for the shareholders? So I, I get the, you know, the sort of gripes about the, what the board has been doing, because they've been sort of management issues for a while. What's sort of interesting to me is Jack seemingly... I don't know. Did he turn against the board? Is he? I mean, he's going off the board, right? That's sort of interesting. I wonder if he would team up with Elon to buy it. I don't know. Just a thought.
2: Uh, I don't see Jack teaming up with Elon, but I'll just say this. I mean, this thing is not done on 420, Jack. I think Elon said he's going to take his ball and go home. I mean, we're just a couple days away from that. So I suspect that, you know, the longer that Elon can stay in the game is the greater the likelihood that he actually can kind of marshal other large shareholders, some other private equity. And, you know, there was a lot of concern if he could buy this or not. He'd have to leverage Tesla shares or whatever. I mean, he probably stays in the game for longer. The stock probably stays buoyed and Guy's probably right, because if there is one other that comes in or gives Elon a little support, it's going to get to that $54 number um, because it has to be a higher offer that gets the deal done.
1: 420, by the way, is when Tesla also reports earnings. Karen, as a former <laughs> arbitrageur, as we like, or our arbitrageuse, yes. <laughs> I don't know what you called yourself then, um, but, but does this scenario yeah. look interesting to you at this point?
3: I mean, I was thinking more about it over the weekend. I think guys point about something bullish happens before something bearish. Um, I think, you know, we, we haven't seen financing. It would be easy for him if he did have financing to show us the financing. It's odd that, you know, the most the richest person in the world is seen by the arbitrage community as kind of flaky and you can't really count on him. That's sort of telling to me. So given the downside, if he were to say, forget it, I'm bored with this, I'm out. I got 9.2% of the company to go. That downside I'm not so excited about. So I'm not in
1: it. All right. Coming up, Schwab shares getting shellacked. Say that three times fast. We'll tell you what had that trade under pressure today. Plus, IBM on deck, the tech company gearing up to report results tomorrow. So we're taking a dive into the options pit to see the action. Fast Money's back in two.
6: Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this.
10: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow
11: with P. a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture-proof of delivery
1: Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a broker Buzzkill. Check out Schwab shares sinking more than 9% after the company reported results that missed analyst targets on both the top and the bottom lines. The legacy brokers under some pressure as they lower or eliminate fees to compete with the likes of Robin Hood. Guy, nobody is getting it easy these days in this in
5: this world. No. And you you hit it, they missed on every metric imaginable. I mean they missed on their revenue, they missed on EPS growth and other metrics that are equally important that they just whiffed on. This stock had a huge move up to 97 bucks. I think, in around Thanksgiving. It sold off significantly, but it still feels like there's room to the downside. I want to say last summer's low when we bounced, 68 bucks, That seems to be the level, and that would actually make sense in terms of where it's trading on valuation right now.
1: Um, it's interesting. Robinhood is forcing this great change within this industry, and yet nobody's really benefiting from it in the end, Tim.
4: Yeah, it's 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 a, it's funny to hear Robinhood mentioned as if they've been this you know this aggressive uh, pursuer and they can't get out of their own way. But I I think this is also a market dynamic and I think this is a wealth effect dynamic and I think Schwab customers are feeling it from the housing market uh, that I believe is actually uh, weaker at least for a lot of these folks in real time than it ultimately may be in the long term. But um, I think the stock market is something else. Like to me, uh, the name you want to be in in the space that gets you into the brokerage community, across into you know, pure wealth management is Morgan Stanley. And Morgan Stanley has underperformed the investment banking group, at least Goldman Sachs uh, over the last couple months. I think Morgan Stanley is well positioned and I think at some point Morgan Stanley could do a strategic acquisition in the uh, you know, the different demographic, whether it's going to be Robin Hood or not, it's another story altogether. but I- I'd rather be driving with micro- excuse me with Morgan Stanley leading the way here. They, they are the class of the operation.
1: All right. Meantime, IBM on deck to report results tomorrow. Uh, The legacy tech giant faring much better than the broader tech space, down just 5% on the year. But options traders are betting that our performance might not last much longer. Mike Coe's got the action. Mike.
5: Yeah. So on IBM, we saw about two times the average daily options volume. Right now, the options market is implying that the stock could move about 5% after they report earnings. That's in line with the average over the last eight quarters. Now, as you pointed out, bearish bets just edged out the bullish ones, and an example of one of the bearish bets that we saw was a purchase of 300 of the October 125 puts at nine dollars and seventy cents each. 300 contracts doesn't sound like a lot, but at nearly thousand dollars per contract, that's actually an outlay of 300 thousand bucks in premium. Obviously, the buyer of those puts is betting that IBM could retest the lows from last November.
1: All right, Mike, thanks for that. Mike Co. Uh, Dan, what do you what do you make of IBM here?
5: Yeah, so
2: they've been. Sales have been declining for years, right, and earnings have been declining, and there's been a lot of calls to break up the company and management change, and reorganizations and all that sort of stuff. So last quarter, they put up a quarter that people actually like. The stock traded really well and it's come back in um, with the market here. So relative to the broader tech space, it looks good, but uh, is it tech? Is it innovation? It's not any of those things. So I think expectations are kind of high here. If there's any disappointment after last Quarter's guide, uh, the stock is going where those put buyers are expecting it to go. In my opinion.
1: All right. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. We are back on Friday, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, Rivian's rough ride, the EV maker going downhill lately, but is a turnaround in store. We are getting an inside look at one of the company's plants for the first time since going public. The details next. Plus, a wave of bird flu spreading through the poultry industry. It could spell even more trouble for the supply chain. The details when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. In less than six months, Rivian's gone from EV darling to struggling startup in the eyes of many investors. Shares down 51 percent from its November 2021 IPO. But now the company is trying to change the narrative, opening its Illinois factory doors to reporters for the first time since going public. Philip Poe joins us with more. Phil.
12: Hey, Melissa, another rough day for Rivian. And the question for investors right now is, When do we have confidence that the supply chain and the production problems are behind them, that they finally have things going in the right direction and are consistently increasing production? We did go to the plant in Normal, Illinois. That's in central Illinois, where they have three assembly lines going right now, the R1T electric pickup truck, the R1S, the electric SUV. And yes, we did see the electric delivery vans that they're building for uh, Amazon, which is a stakeholder in Rivian. Look at their production. It has steadily increased, even though they have a guidance of just 25,000 vehicles for 2022, which is well below what people were previously expecting them to build. But when we talk to the CEO, RJ Scaringe, he believes that most of the challenges that they're encountering, they have eliminated them.
0: It's been challenging from a supply chain you know, point of view with this environment. Um, but we're we're seeing you know daily records being set within our plant, but but really that's driven by how many components we can get, particularly in the semiconductor space, uh, but a lot of really good progress happening there and and we're excited for what's in front of us.
12: Here's the challenge for Rivian. Uh, the fact of the matter is that they are not on the board in the eyes of investors when it comes to EVs in the U.S. They just aren't. I mean, it's Tesla's market, and then you've got some other players there. Yes, the EVs' sales are going to be increasing to more than $2 million per year by 2025. And by then, R.J. Scaringe says they're going to have a decent size of the market, decent chunk of the market, he believes, as they continue to ramp up production. And by the way, they also have the R2 small SUV that they plan to roll out once their plant in Georgia is up and running by 2024, early 2025. If you take a look at shares of Rivian, keep in mind they have 83,000 reservations. So they do have people more demand than supply at this point. But if you place an order today, you're not getting it until the end of 2023. And as you take a look at Rivian, Lucid, and Fisker, the challenge for all of these guys, getting that backlog into production and getting the vehicles Delivered, And, Melissa, this one, one of the things that we're noticing with all of the EV startups, they are encountering a lot of the same problems that Tesla encountered way back when, when it was a much smaller company, and people said, boy, can Tesla ever ramp up? Nobody talks about that anymore with Tesla. But I remember mm-hmm. when they just had one model, and it was challenging quarter by quarter. That is what Rivian is going through right now.
1: Tesla faced the challenge also of just keeping the company afloat, Phil, in terms of capital, a problem that that Rivian does not have. And so you wonder what exactly the real bottleneck is in production if if capital is not the issue. Is it simply supply Well, it's semiconductors right now. Right.
12: Yeah, it's 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 mainly semiconductors. And RJ is very blunt about saying, look, we, we are increasing our production. So is everybody else. But make no mistake, the entire auto industry is semiconductor constrained at least into next year. And, and if that's fine, that message is finally getting through to investors. They're mm-hmm. finally realizing that the flood of vehicles that everybody thought was coming in 22, it's not coming. It's not going to come until we have more foundries, building more chips, and you have the auto industry getting a greater allocation of semiconductors.
1: Right. Uh, Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau, if it's mostly semiconductors yeah. and that issue, you got to wonder, you know, the path to 25,000 vehicles by the end of the year from 2,500 in Q1 seems like, uh, you know, something out of their own control guy.
5: So Rivian is a $33 billion company and do, what, $6 billion in revenue. So you can do that math. Ford, uh, by comparison, is a $60 billion company that does $160 billion. So a couple things are true. Rivian's still too expensive on price to sales, and Ford's still too cheap. And I think both of those things will continue to play out, meaning I think Ford should go higher and I think Rivian should go lower.
2: Yeah, that said, Guy, Mel made the best point. They don't have the capital concerns at the time that uh, 10 years ago that Tesla did when they were trying to ramp. They have $18 billion in cash. Thank you to investment bankers who brought that company public. And they don't have a lot of debt. And we know that they're losing, expected to lose, I don't know, five billion dollars in net income, and then that's supposed to decline over time. So I think the the, the public markets at some point will be able to give them um, a little leeway, especially if their burn is less. And if they were to hit those $25,000 uh, cars by the end of the year, and then also Amazon's kind of the wild card in a way, because they could always step up the orders, which would give the optics of the business a, a little better look, in my opinion. All
1: right. Coming up, a massive bird flu outbreak rocking the poultry industry, and the infection could have some serious impact on the consumer. We got the details next when Fast Money returns. All right, get ready for a bonus hour of Fast Money coming up, the, up at the top of the hour, hitting growth stocks and earnings, even taking some of your questions. Again, 6 o'clock Eastern Time, so stay tuned. Meantime, a massive wave of bird flu is spreading through the poultry industry. Nearly 27 million chickens and turkeys have been infected, and more than 30 states have reported cases. The outbreak has sent egg prices soaring. The CDC says this is a low risk to the public, but is this just another blow to the supply chain and to consumer budgets? Let's bring in Joe Curran, CEO and founder of Partners for Production Agriculture. Joe, great to have you with us.
10: Thanks for having me this afternoon.
1: Anybody who's gone shopping knows that all food prices have gone up, but egg prices in right. particular have gone have skyrocketed. Can you give us some perspective on, on when there could be some relief in sight?
10: Well, sure, and and I think that you you've underpinned this properly. That uh, there's some 325 million laying hens in the United States, of which uh, about 20 million have been affected, and so you get a you know a solid six percent reduction in supply, and just kind of the the merit. Of supply and demand economics uh, have pushed those prices higher. And it came at a time frame right in front of Eastern. I think that's a huge component. We're already starting to see that one start to back off just a little bit, uh, from three dollars a dozen wholesale down to two seventy-five to two fifty or so. We're probably going to stabilize someplace in here though, but I think you've seen the highest prices for the egg side.
1: So we we had hit peak inflation on the egg front, Um, Joe. I'm wondering, though, in terms of prices going higher or staying higher, how sticky these high prices are. um, What is a cycle for for egg-laying hens? I mean, how quickly can you replace the ones that have been culled uh, and therefore get more supply back on the market?
10: And, and you're bringing up a great point because it's not just been the laying hens; it's been the pullets, the replacements that would have come in naturally, have also been negatively impacted. And so we're probably into a little bit of a longer cycle. And you bring up a very good point about the stickiness of these prices. Just in this inflationary environment, we're not going back to whatever we thought was normal. Normal is going to be at a much much higher level uh, than what it was. And that's and it's not, not just eggs. I mean, you've got uh, you've got turkey meat trading at above five dollars a pound, uh, chicken breast at three dollars a pound. Uh, we were in Walmart yesterday paid five dollars a gallon for milk. The price of all agricultural commodities are going to be moving higher. It's partially due to the supply chain, but also input prices have moved significantly higher. Also, corn is trading eight dollars a bushel as we speak.
1: And so in an environment in which all proteins across the board, Joe, are going mm-hmm. higher. Is there some more room for egg prices to even float higher? Because, I mean, the, to trade down, I mean, the trading down effect, because this is oftentimes a, a low-cost source of protein for right. low-income households or, or people who are just watching their budget. Um, as long as it remains lower than rising beef prices or rising chicken prices, I mean, could we, could we still see higher prices in eggs?
10: Uh, probably not. I, I think we've okay. reached a peak. And you bring up you bring up an incredibly good point. Is that eggs represent probably the best value in protein. They're incredibly digestible. Uh, they're relatively economic. Uh, that even if you're three dollars a dozen for eggs, if you have four of them, you know that's a big deal. That's that's a dollar per meal. And so it's uh, it's tough to get too much more economical than than what egg protein provides.
1: Joe, great to great to have you on. Thank you for All giving right, us perspective on this problem. All right, sticking down on the farm, check out rising ag prices. Joyd mentioned them, agricultural um, commodities, corn, soybean, rough rice, all moving higher over the last few months. So it's everything that consumes these things, whether it be other animals or humans. And that's all bad for consumers' pocketbooks, Tim.
4: Well, look at, look at a company like Tyson Foods, um, which, which is you know essentially near all-time highs, is up 21%, has outperformed. Um, and, and they actually have a lot of their feed costs at least hedged out through fiscal three and fiscal four. Uh, and then I think they start to run into some problems. So again, if you look at the broader meat space, Tyson very well positioned, um, trading very well, and they have been able to pass these prices on. We still don't know to what extent that there is sensitivity and where the consumer is going to start to push back on these prices. But as we say, uh, the best thing for higher prices is higher prices. And yes, there are dynamics that will change this uh, longer term, but corn prices will come down. Uh, yeah. And that is something that ultimately is a tailwind.
1: Karen, good or bad for the grocery businesses of a, a Target or a Walmart, higher food prices? Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. I would think it's good for Walmart as
3: prices in general go up, the, customers, you know, the consumers really getting squeezed, and Walmart is just about the best bet they can make on trying to find the best prices on just about
1: everything. So for Walmart, uh, I think it's good news. All right. It is time for the final trades. Let's go around the horn for Monday night. Tim Seymour.
4: Yeah, I'll go back to gold, and I'll say this. GDX has also even kind of underperformed the move in gold, and look at it relative to the move higher back in 2020. Uh, I think GDX, Newmont, and Barrick very well run, and I love the exposure on Barrick to copper.
1: Karen Feinerman.
3: Yeah, so going into big tech earnings, the place I want to be and the place that I do have the biggest bet is Alphabet. And we haven't even heard much lately about the stock split. So I think we'll see excitement around that when it happens early July. But I like Alphabet. as a value stock right here. Guy.
5: Levered Energy, sister. And I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next hour. But PSX has been a monster. <laughs> Stay with it into earnings. Dan. Wow, Karen's alphabet
2: looks like it's like holding on for dear life right there so it may split from lower levels um i like guys ford here look at that thing it's retraced 40 percent of that move from january
1: all right that does it for us this hour but do not go anywhere we have got a special bonus edition of fast money which starts right after this quick break see you then